Good to be here in North Andover. Good to see all of you. Um, I'm grateful to Brian and to JP and the elders for inviting me back to preach. It's a blessing for me to be here. Uh, good to see you. In the, in the, uh, the sermon series this summer, as you've been following along, is uh, based on the book of Psalms and called The Heart of Worship. The great thing about the book of Psalms is you can always find it. Just open your Bible in the middle. Somebody told me that a long, long time ago, and I've always remembered it. You want to find Psalms? Open the Bible in the middle, and you're in the middle of Psalms. And the amazing thing about the book of Psalms is you can read it when, when no other part of the Bible will hold your attention. The book of Psalms will. It is the ancient hymn book, of, uh, prayer book of the Jews and of Christians today. And for the past 3,000 years, it's been the hymn book. I remember when my father passed away, he passed away very suddenly, and we didn't get a chance to say goodbye to him. And there was a lot of grief. I was just overwhelmed with grief. I was very close to him, and the loss was really very hard. I couldn't read the Bible. I couldn't pray. I was so numb with grief, I couldn't pray. I couldn't read the Bible. Couldn't read anything. And then I did what I said. I opened the Bible in the middle, and there were Psalms. And what I learned is that regardless of what you're going through, the book of Psalms speaks. Because it deals with every condition of the human heart and life and spirit. And in this passage today, a familiar one, uh, David wrote it after his moral failure, his sin. David and Bathsheba, everybody has heard of David and Bathsheba. We're going to look at the backstory there a little bit today. So what I want to do this morning, the, the, the title of the message is Finding Forgiveness. I want us to look at, well, first of all, let me just back up and tell you a little bit about what we've been doing. You, you met two of our grandkids here, and their parents are right here, Brian and my daughter Abby. Don't stand up. That's, you know, that's the preacher's kids' horror that they're going to be put out there, and everybody's going to have to see them. Anyway, um, we love coming back as we get to see these guys and our twin grandkids. Uh, I'm still working, not full-time, coaching pastors, enjoying that. I have a book coming out in the next few weeks about church revitalization, Free Christian Church in Andover was a revitalization, and, and it's focusing on that, and um, it, it, I'll sign autograph copies. Happy to do that. We're going to give them away. I don't. I don't think anybody's going to want to buy it. Maybe, maybe it'll be used in uh, sleep studies to help people fall asleep. I don't know. But um, I'm excited about that. And Kathy, who is still doing some editing uh, as a freelance editor, she did the editing on it, and it is going to be a magnificent book. Sammy, who is our um, graphic person here at Free Christian Church. She is actually designing the cover. So it's a kind of a family affair. It's being published by Overseed, which is the, the uh, nonprofit organization that I work for, coaching pastors. But uh, we've got four grand, grandkids. We're volunteering. We love life in Maine. We only come back to Massachusetts to see family and to preach. Otherwise, we have it all in Maine, except for winter. Then we have more of it than you do. But anyway, it's, uh, it's good to be here. Finding forgiveness is the, 
is the title of this message. Um, I'm going to give you some background on the passage and on David. Then I'm going to make three reflections that come right from the text. We'll just work our way through what Laurie read for us, and then we'll try to apply it. So I can hardly see that clock, but I have one right here. Okay. Uh, let me pray for you and pray for me. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A little background on this psalm and on David. Everybody's heard of David. He was the greatest king of Israel, David and Goliath, maybe his most famous uh, episode historically. But David was the greatest king of Israel. He lived a thousand years before Christ, and from David's line came Jesus, as you know. And David was not only a great military genius, he was incredibly courageous. He led his men into battle. He was the one who conquered Jerusalem. Uh, 1,700 years before Islam made a claim on Jerusalem, the Jews had claimed it uh, under David. He conquered it. And, uh, and it was under his leadership that the borders of Israel were expanded to their greatest extent. It's never been equal since that time. David was not only a great military genius, he was also an incredibly gifted musician. The Bible, in fact, calls him the sweet singer of Israel because he wrote so many of the hymns that we have. You know, David really did write the songs that the, that the world sings, not Barry Manilow, okay? Uh, it, was, it was David. And, and we still sing his psalms today in, in various forms. Uh, David, not only that, that he was the king, but he was also the spiritual leader of Israel. A remarkable thing. In our history, probably the only president we ever had who could said to be a spiritual leader was Abraham Lincoln. David was the spiritual leader and, and really the conscience and the soul of Israel at that time, as well as being the, the greatest general and, uh, and king. Um, in fact, the Bible says, God says in the scriptures, that David is a man after my own heart. In other words, David has a heart like me. David is a man of God. This is all that was said about it. And yet, there occurred in David's life and on his record, a blot, a stain that is so dark, we have to wonder why it is even included in the Bible. Today, I think you'll find out why. Had I been writing his biography, I probably would have glossed over this whole incident because it is so painful and so vivid and so dark and sinister even that we're surprised it's there. But what we're going, but the Bible, the Bible is totally accurate. It doesn't leave those things out. In fact, the reason the Bible is true is not because the church says it's true. It's true because it's the only truly, completely accurate description of reality. The Bible tells us the nature of everything we need to know. And, and because of that, it is true, not because it's been said to be true by the church. Um, and what we see in David's life, and we'll see it as we unfold this, is the great potential in David for incredible godliness and the great potential for incredible sin. And those two reside side by side in him and in every single one of us. Great potential for God and great potential for sin. 
That's our conflicted dual nature. When we become followers of Christ, God puts a new nature in us, and now we have war with the old nature. You don't have war if there's only one side. When the other side shows up, then there's this internal conflict that we face, that we experience as followers of Christ. Today, what I want us to learn is that what makes a person a Christian is not that they don't sin and feel guilt about it. What makes a person a Christian is in their relationship with Christ, how they deal with their sin and guilt. What they think, what they feel, and what they do with it. And we'll see in David's psalm here how he did that. So let me, uh, let me give you the backstory of this episode, and then uh, we'll look at some reflections. Uh, let me read to you the incident. I'm going to read in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, because the whole story is there if you want to see it. It starts this way. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, his commander, out with the whole, out with the king's men in the whole Israelite army. That may have been David's first mistake. He didn't go to battle. He stayed back home. And uh, he gets in trouble. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Flat roofs, okay? Not, don't imagine these steep pitch New England roofs you fall off. Just a little technical. Yeah. Um, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. David's probably thinking, okay, probably shouldn't have done that, but no harm done. One night stand. Then the woman went back home, and then she sent word to David. I'm pregnant. Probably down through history, some of the most dreaded words men have ever heard. Uh-oh, David's thinking, this is starting to get a little more complicated. And so now he moves into cover-up mode. And what do they say in Washington, D.C.? It's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And David now begins to cover up. So David comes up with a plan. He's going to bring her husband back from battle and give him a little R&R, &R, arrange a nice little leave from the military for him so he'll spend time with his wife and everyone will think the baby is his and everything will be fine and life will go on for David. Phew, probably shouldn't have done that, but my cover-up is in place now. Everything will be fine. I'm good. Thank you, God, for getting me out of this. Promise I'll never do it again. Well, David's in for a little surprise. He doesn't reckon with Uriah. Uriah is a man of incredible courage, integrity, and moral fortitude. He's like Semper Fi. He's like the Marines, Brian. He says, I'm not going to enjoy the comfort of my wife's arms while my men are facing daily death on the battlefield. And so he comes home, but he sleeps outside. And so David has to kind of up the ante a little bit. He, he gets him drunk, but even that doesn't work. 
Finally, he gives up. Uriah goes back to battle. And he says, oh boy, this is getting complicated. It's taking on a life of its own. And that's what happens, right? With cover-ups, things change. And they start to slip away. And so David now moves in a very dark and evil, sinister way, as if that adultery wasn't bad enough. And he arranges to have Uriah put near the front lines, exposed in battle, so that he'll be struck down and killed. And that's exactly what happens. His general Joab goes along with it, but he doesn't like it. And for the rest of David's life, Joab never forgives David for this. And it's always there as an issue in their relationship. And so David now is free. He, he at least does the right thing by Bathsheba. He takes her as one of his wives. And then he says, all right, well, we got out of that. Dodge that again. Thank you, God, for getting me out of that. I promise I'll never do it again. But um, things don't turn out quite that easily for him. In fact, God is against David. He did rescue him in this. And, and now the plot takes another turn. But now it's God acting. At the very end of chapter 11, the last verse, it says, the thing that David did displeased the Lord. You think so? Probably the understatement of the Bible. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. And so now, as the time for Bathsheba to give birth approaches, God sends a prophet named Nathan to David. And Nathan's thinking, he's the king, I'm nobody. How do I confront him in the name of God with this? And Nathan comes up with a little story. He's going to tell a little parable to David. And that's what he does. And I'm going to read it because I can read it faster than I can tell it. When Nathan came to David, he said to him, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. I once heard a pastor preach on this, and the, and the pastor, um, as he told it, he said, and then Nathan stretched out his long, bony finger in David's face and said, you are the thunder, you are the man. I don't see it that way. I think all, David had, all, all Nathan had to do was say, you're the man. And you could hear the door of the trap close because now David had trapped himself with his own words. You're the man, David. You did this. David then confesses. He pours out his soul, confesses his sin. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says something that is remarkable. 
And it gives us a hint of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A thousand years before Christ, we get a little hint of the grace of the gospel. Because Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. And that's what the word means. In my translation, it says, taken away your sin. But literally, it's the Lord has put away your sin. He's taken your sin, and he's put it away. You think, how's that possible? A woman was raped. This, this wasn't consenting adults, not that that would make it right. This was rape. He's the king. She's the wife of the soldier. Her husband's murdered. And oh, yes, the baby that is born, little boy, died shortly after birth. All of this evil, how is it possible that David gets away with it like this? This is the mystery of the gospel. This is, is the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that in Christ, God has taken the sin of the world and put it on him. Let me read you something that uh, a guy named Richard Foster, who has written uh, some good books, one of them about spiritual uh, prayer and, and scripture reading and all spiritual disciplines. He writes, at the heart of God is the desire to give and forgive. Because of this, he set into motion the entire redemptive process that culminated in the cross and was confirmed in the resurrection. The usual notion of what Jesus did on the cross runs something like this. People were so bad and so mean and God was so angry with them that he could not forgive them unless someone big enough took the rap for the whole lot of them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. Calvary came as a result of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. Jesus knew that by his vicarious suffering as the Son of God, he could actually absorb all the evil of humanity and so heal it, forgive it, and redeem it. And because he lives in the eternal now, this work was not just for those around him, but he took in all the violence, all of the fear, all of the sin of the past, the present, and the future. This was his highest and most holy work, the work that makes confession and forgiveness of sins possible. And so it wasn't anger, it was God's love that set aside David's sin. In the divine realm, he was forgiven. He would not die. In the human realm, he had hell to pay. You know, there's an old saying, what parents do in moderation, their kids do in excess. Not my kids, they're great. <laughs> David's kids from other relationships, other marriages that he had, his adult children, did in incredible excess what David did here. And for the rest of David's life, he was tormented and haunted by the dysfunction of his own children. There was incest, there was fratricide, there was a plot against him by one of his sons to dethrone him. And that son, Absalom, is killed, tragically. But as you read the rest of 2 Samuel, and I hope you will, I hope you'll read the whole book, it's the story of David, you'll see David's character grows, his magnanimity grows, his godliness, his Christ-likeness grows, in spite of all of the consequences of 
his deed. Isn't it interesting? I think it's true. Children find a way to pay their parents back for the, the misdeeds, the foolishness, the poor choices that parents make. Kids find a way, and they often do. And you see that writ large here in this episode. All right, a lot of background, but I wanted you to understand. I wanted you to see the gospel that our sins are taken away too. All right, now three reflections. The first is this. David turns to God. That's the first thing he does. He takes his life out of hiding, and he turns to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. This is verse 1. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. David does what we have to do. You know, it's interesting. When people get into trouble in some way, and I've seen it in the church over the years, the first thing they do is stop worshiping. Someone disappears, and, uh, and no, not always the reason, but often the reason. They, they had gotten into trouble in some way, and they're running, they're hiding. They're hiding from God, they're hiding from us, the church, the fellowship. And that's our natural tendency is to want to run from God when we fail morally. And um, now you're all here, so you're fine. I can conclude that. But isn't it interesting, the God who knows everything, the God who made us, we think we can hide from him. Uh, I recently went for a ride-along with a police officer in our, our little town of 3,000 people in Maine. And uh, uh, he's a young uh, officer, a Christian. Very interesting. First of all, you, you, they're, they're armed to the hilt. He has an AR-15 in the trunk. He's got two sidearms. He's got radar on the front, radar on back, la laser. He can, he can get you whether you're moving or standing still. You can't, by the time you, your radar detector or laser detector goes off, he's already got you. He has a computer that is so fast. We drive by, he'd see a car, he'd type in the license number, and within about two seconds, literally, he'd know who that person, he'd know who the car was registered to. He wouldn't know if that was who was driving it, but he'd know who owned the car. He'd know if there was any warrant across the entire country on this person. He'd, he would know more about that person in about three or four seconds than uh, you might ever find out in your life. You have no secrets. Google has all your secrets, right? Your phone has all your secrets. They know your, your computer's watching you. <laughs> That's an evil thought. Put tape over that little, I don't know. Anyway, um, we have no secrets. The police know. I was glad he didn't type my registration in because he probably would have found some old fishing violations in there. I hope the statute of limitations is over on those. But anyway. Um, God knows us. Why do we try to hide from him? Why do we think we can sneak around? He wants us to be open. He knows. He wants us to be totally open with him. And David wants that now. He turns to God and he says, wash me. Hyssop was a spongy branch that uh, the priests used. They would dip it in blood and they would sprinkle whatever had to be cleansed. Now blood itself doesn't cleanse you. Water cleanses you. That's why we have baptism, to symbolize the cleansing of water. But that was the ancient symbol that a sacrifice was paid, an animal, a costly animal that you had to pay for. You bring it to the priest and he sacrifices it to remind you that your sin is costly. Our sin costs. Our sin hurts people. It hurts us. It hurts God. Sometimes it costs society a lot of money. 
that are finding out all the time in Washington. Sin is costly in that is a reminder. It's the first thing he does. He turns to God. He brings his life out of hiding. He says, enough secrecy. I've got to come clean. And he comes clean. Then the second thing is he acknowledges the seriousness of his sin. This is the second reflection I want to make. And I want to just read some verses. In several ways, in, 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 different, uh, in se several places, in different ways, David says, I get it. I get it. What I did was bad. What I did was so bad. I understand that. And you're going to see it right here. He says, first of all, um, that he can't get it out of his mind. He, he says, uh, let me find that. My sin, uh, verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Always before me. What a vivid psychological image this is. When we hurt people, we think of, we see their faces. Maybe we see the look of hurt on their face. Maybe we see the look of confusion. Maybe we see the look of disgust or whatever it is. We see the hurt. We, we're lying in bed at night and all of a sudden it flashes into our minds. We're going through our day and all of a sudden the, the, the remembrance of this flashes into our minds. And that's what he's describing here, the, the psychology of this. Uh, there was a, a story just in the news uh, early in the spring. Uh, a 44-year-old man from Redding, California, uh, who went to the police and confessed to a murder that he had committed 25 years before when he was only 19. He had murdered another 19-year-old man over drug money. And the, the, the confession was remarkable. He had become a follower of Christ, and he realized he could not live with this anymore. They, he had gotten off with it. They hadn't been able to find out who did it. He went and he confessed to it. He said, every single day, every moment of every day, I lived with the guilt of that. And finally, the, the, the pain, the burden of living with that was so much greater than the thought of going to prison. That I had to come clean. I had to come clean before God. I had to come clean for his family. I had to come clean for his sake, the, the man who was killed. He said, every day I see his face. It haunts me. That's what David is describing here. His sin is before him. He can't get it out of his mind. And then he says, it's against you. This is the second thing he says. It's against you, Lord, that I sinned. Oh, I know Bathsheba was raped. The baby dies. Her husband's murdered. But it's really ultimately against you. My sin is against you. And all of our sin is. All of our sin is ultimately defiance in the face of, of the God of the universe, the God who made everything, the God who made this infinitely vast universe, made us, gives us everything, loves us, blesses us, provides us everything. And we shake our fist in his face and say, we're going to do our own thing. That's, re that's, re that's rebellion. That's defiance. It's against him. And that's what David says. Um, and then he, he agrees with God. He says, you're right. He says that in, in, uh, in, in verse, uh, the rest of, of verse 4. He said, uh, so that you're proved right when you speak, God, and you're justified when you judge. God, you're right. I'm taking your side against me. There's no denial here. There's no blame shifting. It was my upbringing. It's where I grew up. It's my bad nature. It's no blame shifting. No um, justification. Well, you know, I'm a man. I didn't tell her to take a bath right there. There's no rationalization. He says, 
God, you are right. I did it. That's confession. The word confession is a Latin word. Our English word is based on a Latin word, but it's a compound word. It means to say together along with. I'm sorry, to say along together with. To say along together with. To agree. To say along together with God. God, what I did was wrong. You're right. I can't, I can't escape that fact. That's confession. I had lunch with a man just about a month ago who's gone through a divorce. And uh, with, with great candor, he said, Jack, I have no one to blame but myself. I am 100% responsible for the end of that marriage, for the, the destruction to that marriage. I don't blame my ex-wife. I don't blame anyone else. It was me. And I said, that is a good beginning for God to work with. God can work with that. Healing can start when there's total honesty and candor. And so um, I pray for this man. I, I will see him again. I pray for him. Um, I pray that healing comes out of it. I don't think the marriage will be restored. Uh, there's too much harm done. But I pray that he will be restored in his relationship with Christ. Um, all right, then the next thing we see is David realizes that sin goes deep in him. He says in verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, he doesn't mean birth is sinful or conception is sinful. No, he means that there is within every human being this default position that we, we naturally go towards sin. You know, the old thing, you don't have to teach children to be bad, you have to teach them to be good. Our natural, now, you know, children are innocent until they reach an age of accountability and know what they're doing, but they still do what is selfish in their own self-interest, fundamentally. And, and that's, this is what original sin means. It's the origin of sin. It starts with the first human being. And it's true of all of us. We all have this, this nature that we're just going to naturally go there. That's our default. And he acknowledges that. And then he says in verse 6, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me with wisdom in the inmost place. What he's saying there, that I, I was the sweet singer of Israel, God. You, you, you taught me all these things. I have no excuse. Of all people, I know better. I know better. And that's true for us. We've been enlightened in Christ. We know better. We can't say I'm ignorant. David is saying, God, you're right. This total openness and honesty, he comes out of the shadows, out of the darkness, into the light in his relationship with God. He says, God, you know me anyway, and what I did was wrong. I'm not going to pretend it's not. Deal with me. And then the third reflection, and the last one. The, the whole psalm takes a turn now. It's not talking about the past anymore. Now he looks to the future, and there's hope here. David is praying for a changed life and a new beginning. And, and that's why this is such a great psalm. It doesn't leave him there. And, and we see this. He says in verse A, I mean in uh, verse 11, he says, Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David doesn't want to feel that God has, has abandoned him. The Holy Spirit is the assurance that we belong to Christ. He says, don't take the Spirit from me, Lord. And, and God doesn't take 
the Spirit from us. But sometimes a wall comes between our relationship in Christ over sin until we on our side come to God and do what we can do to take our side of that wall down and then our fellowship is restored. David doesn't want to think that he's ever cut off from God. That would be the worst thing that could ever happen to any of us to cut off from God's love. And, and so he says, don't take your Holy Spirit. And then he, then he says, I, I, I want a steadfast spirit. Verse 10. Create an, uh, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He wants to be strong. He doesn't want to do this again. Make me strong, God. He's praying that God will give him a steadfastness so he doesn't go back. Do you know that, and, and I've told you this before, so you probably do. Uh, in ancient Israel, Jews could not own horses. Could not own horses. It was against the law to own a horse. They could own a donkey, but you couldn't own a horse because theoretically anyway, with a horse you could go back to Egypt. Remember, God had led them through Moses out of their darkness, out of the, the, the slavery and the bondage, and they had no knowledge of God there. And, and, and God under Moses led them out of there, and they were to never go back there again. It's only 200 miles. Theoretically, you could do it on a horse. You'd probably do it on a camel, too. Walk on a, walk back, you know, ride a camel back there, maybe even a donkey. But the, but the symbol was a horse could definitely bring you back to Egypt, and you're not to ever go back there. That's what David's saying. God, I don't want to go back there. I don't ever want to go back. Give me the strength so I don't have to go back. The pain of getting out of Egypt was so great. I don't want to go back there. And then he says, last of all, um, restore. Uh, actually, it's not the last thing, but restore the joy of your salvation. Give me joy again, God. Joy's been absent from it, and it is when we're under the burden of guilt. Give me that joy again, and praise for that. And then he says in verse um, 13, I'm going to learn from this, and I'm going to benefit others from this. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will, will turn back to you. I'm going to use this terrible thing that I've done in this horrible experience, I'm going to use it to bless other people. And that's redemption. You know, that often happens in recovery programs, AA or other recovery programs. Someone who has just maybe made a terrible mess of their life and has found forgiveness and freedom now wants to help other people with what they've learned. Uh, divorce care, what an incredible ministry that is. People maybe who have hurt their family, broken up a marriage, but now they want to do something so that some good comes out of what was so bad. And that is so like God. He redeems the future. And David's looking forward to that. And boy, did he. You read the rest of his life and, and, and the things that uh, he was able to do because of um, his turning back to Christ, back to God. Then now one final thought here, and that is, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh Lord, you will not despise. David doesn't want to ever completely heal from this experience. He wants there to be a wound so that it will remind him, a weeping wound in his soul, so that it will remind him of his dependence upon God, that he needs God. He, he never wants to get arrogant again. He never wants to reach that place of pride and arrogance and lose his dependency. 
And, and that's a good way to live. It's a good way for all of us to, to be in touch enough with our humanity, our fallen humanity, that we know who we are. We have an honest assessment of ourselves. There's no illusions. There's no pride. There's no self-righteousness. There's no pretending that we're someone we're not. That's what allows us to be open in relationships and open with God. And David wants that. He wants that humility, that contrite heart. And God doesn't despise that. He loves that. All right. Well, we turn back to God. We acknowledge the seriousness of what we've done. We seek to change. That's his psalm. Maybe you need to forgive yourself. Maybe you know God's forgiven you, but you've never forgiven yourself. Forgive yourself. It may take a thousand times of saying, I, God, you've forgiven me, I forgive myself. It may take years, but eventually it'll stick because forgiveness is a decision we make. It's not a feeling, but forgive yourself. You've not committed the unpardonable sin. Somebody asked me that recently. They said, I, they told me what they did. They said, have I committed the unpardonable sin? I said, no, the very fact that you ask me that question is proof that you're not, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin because you'd be gone. I think the unpardonable sin is when you absolutely, totally refuse God. I don't want anything to do with God. Nothing, get out of my life forever and ever if God does do that. You can forgive it if you turn back. Um, forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. Maybe you need to forgive somebody else. Maybe there's some unfinished business in your life. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness. Do that. You know, leading a church renewal, like I did at Free Church, that doesn't come without some scars. That doesn't come without some damaged relationships. I hurt some people. Over the years, I've actually written to people years later and told them I was sorry. Sorry for things I said. Sorry that maybe I wasn't listening enough to their viewpoint, not patient enough with them. And in some cases, uh, they replied and said, uh, I said some things I'm sorry to, or I forgive you. In other cases, I never heard from them. But it's your unfinished business. Is there somebody you need to just say, I'm sorry, or someone to go to and say, um, you hurt me. I'm not asking anything. I just want you to know that. You hurt me, and I just have to get that off my chest. Keeping short accounts with people is so important. Um, maybe you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never simply said, Christ, come into my life. Live in me. I trust you. I believe in you. I accept your grace and your forgiveness for me. I don't want to live the rest of my life without you. I want you in my life. You can do that. You can, you can say a little simple prayer of asking him into your heart before this day is over, before the sun sets, before the end of this week, the beginning of the new week. You can say, Lord Jesus Christ, come into my heart. Be in me. Forgive me. And fill me with your love and your spirit. Amen. Good to be with you. Let me just close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that even on this warm day, your people have gathered here. Bless them. Encourage them. Help them walk close with you. We know that when you break us in our lives and in our hearts, you break us, you crush us in love, not in anger. And so we turn to you. We want to walk in close harmony and fellowship every day. We love you. We thank you. In your name, amen.